Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Innovating Church podcast. This is the Church Innovations podcast, and uh, I'm here today, Rachel Stout, with uh, Todd Bolsinger, and we're discussing his book, Leadership for a, a Time of Pandemic. So welcome back, Todd. It's good to have you with us again, and uh, why don't we we'll begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive right into our discussion. Good and gracious God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the movement of your spirit and for pushing us out of our boundaries and out of our comfort zones and helping us to adapt to this new time. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So you uh, begin your book with a series of really important questions. Um, and one of the, the one question that really stood out for me um, was that was what does it mean to be an adaptive or adaptive leaders who are able to go into uncharted territory when everybody when everybody has been thrust into it at the same time so i'm wondering if for our leaders because you talk about adaptive leadership in canoeing the mountains and then here again if you could just define what adaptive leadership is and then maybe take a stab at answering that question Good, good, good. So adaptive leadership is built on the work of Ronald Heifetz and his colleagues, Marty Linsky and others at Harvard. Um, uh, it was a series of books started, in, I think he wrote the first book in the 1990s. Um, it's basically on the notion that adaptive leadership is the kind of leadership that's needed when you enter into a place where, where expertise will not solve the problem, when there are no experts. Like I would say, adaptive leadership starts the moment the leader has to stand in front of a people and say, we have a problem, we are going to face it. We do not know what to do. So it's going to require learning. It's also going to require loss because we're going to end up having to drop, leave things behind, drop things, let go things, let go mental models or dominant views that we've had in the past that got us through our expertise. And we're going to have to navigate competing values. So those are like the three elements that I always see is learning, loss, and competing values. And that those are different than when you're an expert, when you know the answers when you're basically trying to find win-win solutions so that you're minimizing losses so that people are comfortable with your technical solutions and where you're, you get to set the value that you're going to build, you know, whatever the bottom line is you're going to build toward. And so adaptive leadership requires you to deal with a different way of being a leader than you would as an expert. And that's what makes it really challenging, especially for those of us in the church who are oftentimes seen as the experts in the Bible, theology, ministry, right? Now we're having to actually lead a people through a process of learning loss and navigating competing values. Thank you. And then, so how would you answer that question of uh, what does it mean to be adaptive leaders who are able to go into uncharted territory when everybody has been thrust into it at the same time? Yeah. So in one sense, there's this uh, giant common experience. Like, like, so I would say that when I wrote Canoeing the Mountains, which is the book that, it, that originally that talked about adaptive leadership, it was all about the fact that the mainline churches were moving from a post a Christendom to a post Christendom world, a world where we had cultural protection and sheltering and support for our faith and for our faith traditions. And now there was coming less of that and that other churches were all moving in at different times. So, so in one sense, I'd have to always make the case. I'd have to start by saying, look, the world is changing. And I'd have some people look at me and go, I don't think so. I don't think it's changing that much. I think we can just, well, as of, you know, on March 13th, 
<laughs> I was I got off my last plane <laughs> March 13th um, from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And uh, by the time I got to LAX, uh, our school was online. I had to ground all my staff. We weren't going to travel anymore. We we're going to how do we deal with help churches when we're and work with people when we can't do the way we have been doing? It changed for everybody. And in you know seven months, you've actually had you know, an increase of change. Like, so we have the pandemic, we have a global recession, now we have uh, protests about social injustice that are raising the surface. So somebody said, you know, we're in 1929 and 1968 all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, and that notion of being in a really disruptive world means everybody's there. Mm-hmm. So how do you act as an adaptive leader? One thing is to, again, name it. You've got a name that we're in this place. I would say that if anybody is looking at you and saying, I have the answer and I alone can solve it, they're, they're lying to you because nobody has this answer. So it's now it's got to, you have to actually lead the learning and which means you have to invite people into a process of learning and growth change that is very, very troubling. And that's one of the things that's really hard for most pastors today mm-hmm. is you're inviting your congregation into an experience of learning, of navigating loss, and navigating competing values that they're just not, we're just not used to doing. It's a different way of having to lead our congregations. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you also recap um, this model of transformational leadership um, from canoeing the mountains. And that's those three spheres with uh, the leadership components of technical competence, relational congruence, and adaptive capacity. And you stress the importance in your book of function saying that nothing changes until there is a change in behavior. I was wondering if you could say more about that in yeah. light of this sort of shared experience that we're all Yeah. We're all so leadership itself is always an act. It's an act of, it's, it's, a, it's a way of being, it's a way of acting. So leadership, I would say leadership is not about a title or having heavy furniture or a corner office. Leadership is means you show up to help lead the transformation of a group of people who need to go through change so they can faithfully accomplish their mission. So what it means is until you start acting differently, nothing's different. There's, there's, no, there's no slow changes. So you know if we say, hey, we're going to be about loving our neighbors, but all of our money and our resources go to making our members comfortable. Well, then no matter what we say, it hasn't, it hasn't changed, right? So if, you know, if we say that we're about trying to speak prophetically for justice for all, and yet every decision we make is about how we can keep our, you know, uh, the status quo as comfortable as possible, as familiar as possible, then nothing's changed. It's, leadership requires the changing of behavior. And what's interesting about it is adaptive leadership believes that you don't learn until actually, actually, until actually you've made behavioral changes that are like, that are experiments that you can then learn from. So I love that you Being use this. And in doing oh, sorry. that is really different than just thinking or talking. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that you use, uh, Todd, the story of, um, of uh, Israel's uh, Exodus journey in your book. And I've got to tell you as a pastor and redeveloper, oh my gosh, like I have, I, we've, I mean, I've always resonated with the Exodus and the exile, but more so now. Um, and, uh, you know, especially that it took Israel just six short weeks to get to that point where the anxiety had set in for them. 
again. And um, I'm wondering that you named two challenges in that after that illustration. And I know I've experienced them personally, but and others have too about helping the congregation face the changes brought on by the pandemic and keeping everyone aligned um, on the best approaches and possibilities um, that transform transformation offers. So, and I think that of the two, <laughs> perhaps the the second one is the hardest. Oh, yeah. um, and I'm wondering if you would talk about why that is. Yeah, yeah. So, so like, I, so like I talked about March 13th, right? So on March 13th, that was a Friday, Friday the 13th. Mm -hmm. On Sunday, March 15th, almost every church I knew went online, right? So every church I knew did Facebook Live or Zoom or something like, and and it was just like this, this experience of oh my gosh, how disruptive. And I remember the next week talking to clients who are you know working with churches who were saying stuff like, well, as long as we can get this thing worked out by Easter, because I can't imagine having to cancel Easter. Right. Like that's the way people talked about it. Like, like, you know, like, like, like the resurrection didn't happen or Easter wouldn't happen if we can't have our services. Right. And somebody said to me, that would be the hardest decision I could ever imagine having to be the thing that we're not going to have service on Easter. Six months later, everybody looks back at that naive. Oh my God, that was easy. Everybody agreed. Oh yeah. We're not going to gather. What's really hard is when are we going to open up again? Mm -hmm. Even that language open up, open the church is problematic. Right. Because what it means is we have this mental model that said the church was closed. I mean, the, the irony, if you go to Google and look up a church, it'll often say closed. Right. And yet the church isn't closed. So I say to people, if there's two things we could do, you could just, in your head, two shifts. One is not talk about going back to normal. There isn't going to be any normal. Like, and, and, there's, and, and really the opportunity of COVID allows us to look at the underlying conditions we want to address that could help us move forward. But the second thing is, please don't use the word closed. The right. church is closed. Think of our, now we get to think of our buildings and our programs as tools in our mission. I always said, like, if, if you're sending a whole group of kids to camp and the bus breaks down, you would actually know what to do. You'd, you'd call every kid who has a cell phone would call a parent and they would, we'd figure out how to get enough cars to get everybody to camp. And if nothing else, we would figure out, we would camp, right? We don't think the same way about our buildings. So the hardest thing is the mental model of what the church means is that you have now deep division. We're not the church unless we're gathering. We're not the church unless we're doing these programs. We're not the church unless we are fill in the blank. And then now we're having a deep theological div division that is kind of built on cultural context about what it means to be the church. That's an identity issue. That's much more difficult. Absolutely. Well, and it's interesting because some of the folks who I've heard scream the loudest you know, church needs to change and adapt and grow. Now, all of a sudden, they're shouting back going, no, put it back in the building, put it, do, put it back the way it was. And, um, and it, 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 it's, it's, there's some whiplash going on. Oh, well, so one of the parts I always say is remember that the word familiar is the same root word of the word family. So I always say whenever we want to go back to something familiar, it's because anything familiar even if it's dysfunctional, like a dysfunctional family feels like we're at home. Right. And we'd much rather be in a dysfunctional home than feel homeless. And so the disorientation of feeling like we are homeless, we are rootless, we are traveling, we are journaling, we're in a wilderness is so hard. And that's what we see in the Exodus story, right? 
six weeks after the greatest his, the greatest miracle until the resurrection, the parting of the Red Sea, the the freedom of the people of God from their captivity. Six weeks later, they're saying, you know what? They killed our children, but at least we had leeks and onions for lunch. Let's go right. back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You brought us out here to die, Moses. Way to go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I love, so one of you, you and your wife have some great adventures. Um, and I love the story you told about the blacksmithing class that you took. Um, and at some point you should tell about sort of how you decided, oh, hey, let's go take a blacksmithing class. But um, I, I, I really like that because what stood out for me was what, when the instructor told you that since you're gonna be swinging that hammer over and over and over and over and over again, um, that you're not to worry about doing it hard, mm -hmm. just to let it fall and let the hammer do the work. Yeah. And I think given sort of your years of experience, but also this time, you know, could we put some flesh on that analogy? But so what does letting the hammer do the work look like um, for congregations in this time? Yeah, so the blacksmithing analogy is about the transformation of raw steel material into a tempered tool that could be used to bring transformation, like a chisel, the way a chisel can transform a, a hunk of rock into a, like a stone that can build something. And so we're using this analogy about, and what we talked about is the hammer is the formation, it's the pounding away that forms the tool into the shape that needs to be to be useful. And I use that as a metaphor for spiritual practices. And I often think about the fact that for spiritual practices, the point of a spiritual practice isn't to grid it out. It's not to say, hey, I've been committed to fasting 42 days in a row. Last year, I only got to 40. This year, I can fast longer. Mm -hmm. The point of a fast is that it, what it does to you in, in spiritually, internally. So the point is let the spiritual disciplines do the work. Pick the right spiritual practices for the challenges in front of you and let them do their work by engaging in them and being in them. Instead of where many of us look at spiritual practices as like a 30 day challenge on the internet. And what it really needs to be is not about, hey, I made it. It needs to be, what is God doing through them? And one of the things I do is I offer some spiritual practices, particularly for developing resilience, mm -hmm. that are different than some leaders often think about. Yeah, and I thought those those particular exercises were super helpful. The um, not uh, and the journaling pieces too for those that um, prefer to kind of write it out. Um, so, how have you seen? So, the the next question being related to those spiritual practices. How have you seen for yourself um, those play out during this time? Because um, you talk about how they train us to respond to a crisis and to resistance so that so that those sorts of things are just second nature to us. Yeah. So one of the first things that I do is 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 what I'm doing in my, most of my work today is I'm asking leaders to think about their spiritual practices and have they changed in their lifetime and how have they changed? So many of us took on spiritual practices because we needed to grow as Christians. So I was taught read your bible pray, you know, uh, go to church. Like those are good. I still do those things. I still read my Bible, pray, go to church. Mm -hmm. But if I'm trying to lead, if I'm called to lead a community of people who are resistant to my leadership, then what practices do I need in my life for God to develop the resilience I need to be able to lead a people? And two of them that I talk about in this little book is, um, one is that of looking, like literally learning to look at a system 
to look at the larger things going on, to observe, to spend make more time making observations than interventions, learning to see a problem more deeply than try to solve the problem. Because many of the times we move to the solution because we're anxious. We got to solve this. What should we do? Well, whatever we're going to solve it with is probably something that is all we've already tried or already done. It's so if you're truly in an adaptive territory where you have to learn, then learning to observe and see it before you do something about it is really important. So it's learning to slow down and learn to observe together and make observations and get other eyes on it. Is uh, there's one of the books that I like to um, quote a lot it talks about you know eyes on, hands off, like like mm. learn to see, right? That's a huge for many of us who are you know, by nature doers, what do, what do we check off our checklist that we got done today? Mm-hmm. It, it's hard to say, well, we spent a lot of time observing the situation. So the other one is listening, learning to listen to voices I don't, wouldn't otherwise say, and learning to listen deeply until people feel attuned to me and I feel attuned to them. Mm-hmm. Attunement accelerates change. Um, attunement is the experience of you understand me so much that I trust you, that even if I don't agree with you, I trust that you understand me. And we know this from brain science, that when people feel deeply listened to, brains start firing together. Like there's this kind of deep empathy makes us feel a sense of deep connection so that we'll stay with people. So one of the huge important parts of our life is to listen for the sake of learning, but it's also to listen for the sake of attuning so that people, so that we're developing a sense of deep trust as we're taking people into places of learning and loss that are disorienting for them. Thank you. And you end the book um, by talking about how this is an adventure. Um, and when I read that, that was um, that was new. I was also on vacation when I read that book. So it was different for me to think about, oh yeah, this is an adventure when you're on vacation than when you're in sort of the thick of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and you talk about the possibilities that await us. Um, and, and we've been at this, as you said, I mean, seven months now into this and, and it's not going away anytime soon. So what are the possibilities that have materialized? But also, can you speculate um, as to what possibilities await for us in this new world? Um, yeah, so it's been interesting. So um, on, on March 13th, when I came home, um, and I March 15th, that Sunday, when I was like, you know, bopping online, checking in on a number of my friends and clients and people that I know, I started thinking, man, it's really going to be a different world. Well, I had 15 speaking engagements canceled in the next week, just 15 of them, boom, gone. Wow. I've had over 40 webinars since then. And probably at least a dozen podcasts like this. Sure. So all of a sudden I start thinking, okay, there is a conversation to be had that we weren't that that we can have at a different level and pace than we had before. And one of the parts that I've done in almost all my webinars is I have let people chat in on Zoom. Um, tell me if if COVID attacks the underlying conditions in a body, like you know the people in your church and your family who are at risk because they have underlying conditions. I have a 78-year-old father whose health is fragile because of the underlying conditions. If I said, if the wrong delivery guy shows up without a mask at his house to deliver food, it could be bad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what are the underlying conditions? And what's interesting is that when you start listening to people talk about it, you start hearing that there's three or four underlying conditions that just show up all the time, that this gives us the opportunity to address that we wouldn't otherwise address. 
and what's interesting is Ronald Heifetz wrote about this in 2009 when he wrote about um, leadership in a permanent crisis. And he said, once you get through the acute stage, like the emergency room stage, when everybody's finally not panicked and not going to die, you actually have a moment to take advantage of what he calls the adaptive stage to address the underlying organizational issues that you've not had the will to confront before now. And that's exactly where I think the church is now. We are moving out of the acute stage into the adaptive stage, and we have a choice to make. Will we address these underlying issues that we've needed to address? And this gives us the opportunity to look at those that we wouldn't otherwise do. So what are those underlying issues? Well, they're different for every every church. I would say there's four that show up all the time for me. One is we are now really asking questions about how deep our discipleship is. Have we, uh, there is, I believe there's a crisis of adult discipleship. Do we have a faith that can persevere through trials and continue to love God and love neighbor when we have, don't have the same structures that we had before? Is there, so I think there's a discipleship issue. I think there's a community issue. You know, like people are now more and more afraid. Oh my gosh, people can just click off and go to another church, <laughs> right? Like, do we have a sense of deep connection and community that will hold us relationally and make sure that the sense of Christian community holds us through the trials? Um, do, um, is there a sense, a deeper sense of community? Third, I think there's a leadership development question. People are asking, you know, if we don't have centralized models of a preacher in a pulpit in a gathered sanctuary, and if instead we decide that what we need is to decentralize the church so we can mobilize and keep engaging people, do we have enough leaders who can in, uh, lead the church in its mission in a decentralized mo- mode. Um, so discipleship, community, leadership development. And I think the fourth one that is really coming to the, the fore a lot, especially in our uh, political and social unrest, is uh, the crisis of a church that has been shaped by being in the dominant culture that now doesn't have both the resilience or the prophetic witness to care for the marginalized and the disenfranchised and the poor, the way the gospel talks about. We're now seeing, we're seeing the limits of our capacity to do that. Mm-hmm. So, so when you literally have church councils arguing over, you know, should we wear masks when literally we have people in our church who could die because of it? Like talk about like the, like, like the people in our congregation whom we love are the most at risk. Right. And we don't have the capacity to think about um, being uncomfortable or being disoriented for the sake of the love of our closest neighbor, let alone right. our community neighbors and our farthest neighbor. I, th- I think we have these crises. So discipleship, uh, community, leadership, and privilege, I think are all the underlying conditions. Most definitely. Thank you, Todd. Is there anything you'd like to add as we close this time out? Um, this is, um, it, it, it's such an important um, book and your your next book that is coming out in November, right, um, is uh takes up, you know, the failure of nerve and the failure of heart. And so we'll have a great conversation um, about that when that comes. But is there anything more you'd like to add for our listeners? Well, let's just things. One is, uh, if you're interested in more resources and wanting to engage this conversation with me, you can actually just send a text. You just send the word uncharted to 66866. Uncharted 66866. Too many sixes in a row for a pastor. Thank God there's an eight in the middle. But it's just the word uncharted, like uncharted territory. And the reason why I say that is I love to have people engage the material that we're working on. It helps me, and that's part of how I learn. Um, And that's also how we've got resources available for people. 
the second part of that is I think this is a moment for almost ev for every leader of every, especially church community that I'm talking to, to ask, how do we not waste this crisis? Like if all we want to do is go back to normal, we're going to waste this crisis. It's going to like, like if, if we have just had our church flown, you know, thrown into an emergency room and our chest cracked open and our heart exposed, do we not want to take advantage of this moment and this urgency to ask ourselves, what is it, what is it will take to be a healthier body of Christ that is more faithful to our mission at this moment? And I just want to encourage people to, to take advantage of this, to enter into that adaptive stage and address those crises in a deeper way. Excellent. Thank you, Todd. Would you pray us out as we end our time together? Dear God, for the work that Rachel and Patrick and others are doing together, um, I ask you to give them grace and sustenance and the capacity to learn and grow. For the churches that they reach and for the pastors who will hear this voice, this, these conversations, pray that you will give them courage and the, sus the sustaining power of your presence. And for the work that you've put before us, may we be um, open to and um, eager to say yes to your calling, we pray, because we know that you are with us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us, everybody. This has been the Innovating Church Podcast. See you next, or well, join us next time. <laughs>